Why did Jesus have to die? And that's what we're going to really deal with today. So some of us go through the Bible once a year, or we try to. And I suppose when you do that, we get the highlights. And you know, it's a great Christian exercise to do daily. But when you come to this portion of Scripture, I suppose reading through it alone and for the first time, it could be somewhat confusing. I know it has been in the past for me. And this is really a masterfully written statement that ties everything together. And if we can grasp this portion of Scripture, it will greatly impact and change our walks with the Lord. And our intent is to see what that is today. Because the verses we're exploring together are the very heart and soul of our Christianity. And as such, there is a level of inadequacy that I feel in teaching through this, which is why we're taking it very slow. See, this is the doctrine of soteriology, that doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of justification by faith, the atonement. And we took four weeks in a four-part series just to talk about how a man, how a person, how a human being is made right with God and what that looks like. We looked at the how, and now we'll look at the why Jesus had to die. And I think that we all have an idea as to why, but it's so much more than we think about in our daily lives. So in other words, we have seen the how, and but now we will see the why, and it changes everything. It changes our whole view. Since this passage was written, the scriptures that we'll read today, among all other scriptures, this has been the most dissected, expanded, and applied by theologians. It's a doctrine that throughout the history of the church that has been lost, it's been found again, it's been lost again, it's been found again, it's been lost again, and it's been found again, this grace it's been misrepresented, it's been misunderstood, it's been hedged on, it's been understated, it's been overstated, it's been confused, as well as taught appropriately and properly. And whenever the church fully understands the doctrine of the justification by faith, it truly understands the reality of its gospel. But when it does not, it misses the gospel message completely. And that is at the, right at the very heart of the church. Because if we are wrong about the gospel, souls then are damned and may not even know it. They may not even know it. I feel like what John MacArthur said, and I'm going to quote him here. And he said something that if you think about who he is and the theologian that he is, he said this about these very scriptures, about this very portion. He said, I feel much like a little boy trying to explain something that ought to be explained by an old man with many years of wisdom and understanding. In these very scriptures, end quote. Now, for him to say that, how does that make me feel in these scriptures? I share the same sentiment as he does. I feel like a little boy trying to explain something that an older gentleman should be explaining, who has way more wisdom than I do. So, we must always invoke the duties of the office of the Holy Spirit. And we do that today to enlighten us, to open our minds to the scriptures, enlighten us to our great faith as we plumb the depths of it. And that's what we're doing. And it's amazing. Our faith, this faith that we have, our Christianity, our salvation, it's like a many faceted diamond. When we set our salvation on that backdrop of black velvet under light, it shines. And as we turn it, to each section, its clarity is enhanced more and more for us, and we become enamored with it. We learn so much more. And just like that diamond, we see new aspects of our salvation 
as we study, as we wait, as we learn more and more. That's why it's important to continue to go through what we think we already know because there's so much more than what we see. This reminded me, thinking about that diamond, reminded me of the 120 disciples waiting in the upper room in the book of Acts. You remember that? They're all waiting in one accord for the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And we see a picture in that of study and prayer and how the Holy Spirit moves so beautifully among them. Why? Because they waited for power and for light as those who wait for the dawn, as for men and women who have come to see a play waiting for the lifting of the curtain that hides every scene from view and they can't hear and they can't see until those curtains are raised. The Holy Spirit, He's the Spirit of truth and He was about to come and lead them into all Christian truth. Truth that they had already heard as they walked with Jesus Christ. But it would become more clear now. And as they waited and as they prayed, they studied and discussed the scriptures together. And what did that produce? It produced in the heart and mind of Peter to stand up and to quote those Old Testament scriptures to say that Judas had to be replaced. There's no doubt that As they were waiting, he was searching the scriptures. Think about it as they're waiting in that upper room. Everything that Jesus told them, Jesus recapped it for them after he rose from the dead. And they're in that upper room, not only praying and waiting, but looking at all the scriptures that proclaimed Christ. And when it came time to say something, there were all the scriptures laid out by the Holy Spirit for them to see. And so it is one sense an extemporate effusion under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, but in another it was the fruit of careful study. In other words, it was a combination of instant unprepared enlightenment by the Holy Spirit combined with careful handling and studying of God's word. And that is how we come to interpret God's word. So as we have been waiting and waiting through this, it's my desire that the Lord do the same with us today, to fill in all of our inadequacies and our shortcomings, to open our eyes to more of the truth of this great gospel that we have, this many-faceted diamond of truth that we have right before us, and provide us with a greater reverence for our God. That's what these scriptures will do if we can truly grasp them. So how fitting it has been to approach this subject, the great day of atonement, because this week is when they celebrate it. I believe it starts on Tuesday. And so to the Hebrew and to the Jew, it is known as what? Yom Kippur. It is in fact celebrated this upcoming week, as I stated. And this salvation, this atoning blood, brings with it some fundamental components, as we have seen. And this is where we left off in our study in the first half of verse 25, where we have read this. And it says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. Because Jesus is our substitute who God set forth, as we discussed, as a propitiation, a satisfaction. And it was by His what? It was by His blood. We reviewed many scriptures about His blood last week. But by way of reminder, let me review a few of them with you. Just three, real quick. Ephesians 1.7 tells us, In Him, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Hebrews 9.12 says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And Revelations 1.5 it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. 
in His own blood. This setting forth of Jesus Christ, this substitution by His blood, brings into view for us the cross. And the cross then becomes the focal point of everything. This is the centrality of our faith. All salvation is anchored right there on the cross and Jesus Christ's death. It is where everything is satisfied. For who? For all who believe. All who looked forward to the cross and all who looked back at the cross, even today when we look back at the cross. And this cross of Christ, again, is the very center of our Christianity the very center of our faith. It's the basis for our hymns. It's the theme of our music. It's the main story of our testimonies. It's the central focus of baptism. It's the primary issue we deal with when we take communion together. And it's the very heart of our faith. And this cross of Christ is displayed all over the New Testament for us, even in the Old Testament. And it's our main theme. We see it in Galatians 6.14 where it says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 2.24, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. And in Colossians 2.14, he writes, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The cross of Christ, the centrality to our great faith. And we have seen how this salvation was brought to the world. We dissected it in four parts, and now we see why. And in this cross, it includes many things. It has a sweeping impact on the entire world. Well, how so? And this brings us to our outline. Because the, re- the cross results in salvation for man. We know this. The cross also results in the damnation of Satan, of his demons, of his entire dominion, and those who don't know Christ. And the cross results in the glory of God. And I'm here to tell you that is its main purpose. Not for you and me, but for His glory. And that's what we're really going to look at. So these are fundamental components of the cross of Christ. This is the miracle of salvation. Ultimately resulting in what? In the glorification of our great God, which is in reality His vindication. We'll go through as to what I mean by that. Now, as a recap, let's read verses 21 through 25 together again before we move on. It tells us, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now we have seen the impact that the cross of Christ and His atoning blood has had on mankind. Salvation through faith is brought to us. It's available to everyone who believes. 
and the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross results in the way of salvation for all mankind, for all who believe. Back then when the scriptures were interpreted, not everyone spoke Hebrew. Everyone spoke Greek, though. And so the scripture was translated into the Greek. And what that is called, it's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was written. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures of the Bible. And in this translation is a word that is peculiar to the words that we find here. And we have devoted some time to that. But let me expound upon that a little bit more. If you knew Greek, it's all Greek to me, but if you knew Greek, if you read the Old Testament in the Greek, you would eventually come to Exodus and Leviticus. Then you would land on the explanation of the Ark of the Covenant. And in reading about the Ark, you would discover that it was sort of a box and it was overlaid with gold. And there was a gold lid on top of that ark. And on that lid were two cherubim, two angels. And they were covered in gold facing each other. They were covering their face because of reverence. Because right at the center is where the throne of God was. And in between them and that throne was God's Shekinah glory where, they would, where he would meet. And this ark sat where? It sat in this holiest place, much like a cubicle, if I can call it that, the Holy of Holies. And this is where the high priest would be by himself on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. The other priest would be in the other section separated by a thick veil. And then after that, you had all the courts outside, the court of the men, the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles. But going back into this little cubicle, inside the Ark of the Covenant, you had a few items inside that. And what were they? Well, Hebrews 9, 2, and 4 tells us this. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The last item, I believe, is the most important for our setting today in these verses. It held the Ten Commandments, the laws, God's law, the demands of a holy God to a nation of people. That was inside the ark. You would then, as you read in Greek, you would read about the great day of atonement, Yom Kippur. This is the day that you would have the two goats, the scapegoat and the one that was killed to shed his blood. And Jesus fulfilled both. You know, on the scapegoat, the hands were placed on the goat, transferring of sins And it was let go into the wilderness. And there's a reason why. Because the significance is that sins were carried away. But the issue was, nobody knew where that goat went, so it was perpetual. It had to be done all the time. Now we know where Jesus went, to be with the Father. So He took on all that wrath, but He rose again. So then you had the one set to be slaughtered, what they would do is they would wrap a scarlet ribbon around its neck to identify it. And they would take and they would drain the blood from this goat. And it was faced in such a way after they chose it to the crowd where they could see it. Just as Jesus turned to the crowd when he was with Pilate, wearing a scarlet robe. It's the same setting. Once this was slaughtered, the blood would be taken into the, in by the high priest. And it was sprinkled onto the lid of the golden ark in between the cherubim on God's throne. Here is the blood then of this animal sprinkled on top of what? God's perfect commands, the Ten Commandments. What happens then when with God's throne? It becomes the mercy seat. 
It's the mercy seat. Jesus bore all the justice we deserve. They're fulfilling all the perfect law when he shed his blood. It became the mercy seat. Romans 8.32 tells us that all the wrath came onto Jesus. And it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up. For how many? For us all. For everybody. So the cross then has this tremendous effect for us. Jesus, his death saves us from hell, from sin. How do we know this? 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Romans chapter 5, 8 and 10, as we will get to, says, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And in 2 Corinthians 5.18 it says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood effectively turns the throne of God into a place of mercy, but not for everybody, for all who come to know Him, who believe on Him. How gracious is our God. How necessary this is. Because what ends up happening is what is described in Psalm 85, verse 10, where it says, Mercy and truth have met together, Righteousness and peace have kissed. That's what's happening. It's because of the shedding of blood, this satisfaction that God can show us mercy, and He becomes just and also the justifier. We are alive to God by the death of Jesus. We are saved by Jesus' death on the cross and the shedding of His blood. And that message is repeated how often? Constantly, constantly throughout the pages of this book of hope. And so the cross then results in salvation for those who believe through faith. Through faith. The cross then has on man an impact resulting in man's salvation, but then it also results in the damnation of Satan the damnation of his demons, all the principalities and powers are then made to no effect. No effect at all. Mentioned before, the Christ, uh, the cross of Christ is alluded to all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Do you remember that? God is speaking to the serpent, and what does he tell the serpent? He says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It is here in this message, in these scriptures, that the prophecy is foretold in Genesis 3.15, but here it's fulfilled on the cross. The result is what? That Satan and his dominion are defeated and put to shame, defeated forever. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood... He himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. In talking about sins nailed to the cross in Colossians 2.15, it says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And in Revelation 1.18, Jesus himself saying, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Is that not encouraging? What was Satan's only weapon? Satan's only weapon is death. Oh, he can jab us, he can harass us, him and his demons, but they cannot take away our salvation. Isn't that awesome? His only weapon is death. And when we are in Christ, we are alive forever. And there's nothing He can do. He cannot take that away. That was His only weapon and it was taken from Him. 
Jesus conquered that on the cross in his death. This is why the Bible tells us we are more than conquerors in him. Satan has no power over us. But we can allow him to have power over us when we get involved in sin that we ought not to get involved in. And we do that over and over. But thank God we have Jesus who we can come to and repent and walk right with him and through his power by the Holy Spirit, that dunamis power, that dynamite power, he can help us walk in him. And so this cross culminates in all the fulfillment of all the prophecies. Everything pointed to it. Jesus fulfilled all of it. And it provides for us as Christ followers, how to walk in this world, how to walk in it with joy. And so the cross then affects us by either saving us by believing or damning to hell without accepting Jesus. And it also results in the defeat of Satan and his total dominion. And it gives Jesus the victory, therefore it gives us the victory. And all of this results in the most important impact of all, which is the vindication of God. The vindication of God. Now we pick up these verses here in the second half of verse 25 and 26. And what does it tell us? It says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now these verses are really the basis for all of this, because the cross of Christ saves us. Yes, absolutely. It condemns Satan and those who don't know Christ, certainly. Yet believe it or not, those are secondary impacts. Those are secondary. The main impact and most important result of the cross of Jesus Christ is the vindication of God, and it is for His glory. And what we are really looking at are the ways that the cross doesn't glorify us. It glorifies God. And to understand this profound piece of argumentation, we must set our minds right at this point. We must do what we rarely do. And we have to look at this salvation in the cross from God's standpoint, from God's viewpoint. Don't look at it from what we receive, but from what God receives. In other words, how does the cross glorify God? And we really need to dig into it and get in on this divine glory and this divine view. Now, as we have looked at how we are saved, now we look at the why. Why of this salvation? You ever thought about that? Why all of this? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross to forgive us? Why couldn't God just say, I love you and I forgive you and poof, it's done. Why couldn't he just do that? I mean, after all, look at what Jesus taught himself in Luke 17, 3 and 4. He says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now, in this process that Jesus lays out for us, does anyone have to die in that process? I mean, you might feel like they should die because of what they've done towards you. But they don't have to die so why all this death on the cross business? Why was it needed? I mean, think about it. After all, it's a gruesome story of pain and suffering. Why make anyone go through that? There was a bleeding and tortured man up on a cross who never deserved it. Why go through all this? Why did God forsake Christ and allow him to go through all of this torture? These are great questions, but they only scratch the surface of truth in their simplicity. You see, to ask, why did Jesus have to die for my sins, is to not understand sin at all. Now follow me here. 
It is to not understand sin, all of it, in the sight of an utterly holy and righteous God. We look at things from our standpoint and rarely, if ever, from His. The 11th century Archbishop Anselm said this, and I quote, If anyone imagines that God can simply forgive us as we forgive others, that person has never yet considered the seriousness of sin and the weight of it before an utterly holy God. End quote. The staggering reality of sin, the holiness of God, and all original sin enters in right here. All of it at the cross of Christ. And you know what else is in the picture here? Death. Because you sin, you die. That's what the Bible tells us. You sin, you die. And there's so much here. Uh, many have said you could spend years talking about these scriptures here. I mean, how can we do it in just one sitting? It's like trying to hold water in a cup that somebody is constantly pouring into and it's overflowing and it's overflowing all the time. And so this leaves us with many questions. And throughout these verses, we're going to have a lot of questions, or at least we should. It should invoke those things. It should stir up those things. And we won't be able to resolve all of them here. But that's a good thing. Because if God works out all things for the good, which He does, and the Bible tells us that He does, then you and I, when we're prompted to search, we go out and search the Scriptures. We look for these things to identify them and to help us Walk in our faith. Now, going back to these two verses here, we see that the Apostle Paul tells us twice, in verse, once in verse 25 and once in verse 26, that all of this salvation is to demonstrate His righteousness. Now, at first glance, we might think, oh, okay, we've talked about righteousness before, the righteousness that He gives to us. And that's not it. It's His righteousness. You see, this word encompasses all of God's traits. His love, His long-suffering, His righteousness, His justice, everything. It encompasses all of His characteristics. And so the Apostle Paul says this twice, possibly as one has said, to warm our hearts to an idea that we never really think about. It's His righteousness. You see... Think about this. When we approach the cross of Christ, we approach it from the standpoint of what Jesus did for me, which is true, which is good, which is right. But we never really approach the subject of the cross of Jesus died for God. Rarely do we do that. Why? Well, one reason is probably because we think God doesn't need anything. I mean, what does he need? Do you hear that? Is that time... Is it time, time over? <laughs> what does he really need? We're the ones in need. That's generally the thought, is it not? But not only that, in our society, are we not conditioned to focus on ourselves in every possible way? I mean, we expect when we go out to eat or something like that to be served, and not only to be served, but to be served well. And if you don't serve me well, you're not going to get tipped very well. This is the way we're conditioned to think. We have this expectation. Think about this, and here's a question for you to think about. When you think about heaven, what do you think about? I'm going to be walking on streets of gold. Everything's going to be perfect. I get to live in a mansion. I get to talk with those people that I haven't seen in a long time. You begin to think that way, but what's the main purpose? What are we going to be doing there? Glorifying God. You see, we're conditioned in this fashion. So all of this selfism and conditioning is brought into the church life. Think about it. We walk in and we begin to think things like, I wonder who's doing worship today. I wonder if they're going to sing the songs that I like. Are they going to sing those really old songs that... Man, I can't really get into. Or what about this? Man, I hope this guy doesn't drone on and on and on and on about things we've already talked about. I mean, we come to hear how God's Word can help us advance our life, 
What's the application to me? How can I carry this out? When's God going to bless my life? We look for all of these things, and there's little concern of how we can advance the kingdom of God, which is the sole purpose of being here. That's the sole purpose. So much gospel preaching from the pulpits is much the same way. We can't sit and blame people in the pews. We have to look at it from the angle of the pastor. I mean, we say things like, if we want to win people to Christ, then we have to tell them how Jesus can help them, not how they glorify God. If we ask them if they have an addiction or if they're lonely, just come to Jesus and He'll help you. You know, it's that Elvis type of salvation, are you lonesome tonight? I was thinking about that when I was, are you lonesome tonight? Because I'll take care of all of your issues and all of your problems. And Are these things true? Absolutely they're true. Absolutely they're true. But if we are then converted under that gospel preaching, much of our Christian life is waiting in expectation of a blessing from God all the time. We're waiting for the next blessing and the next blessing. And you get these pastors on TV who are telling you that promotion is yours. It just hasn't come yet. You get all of that laid into it. In other words, we're converted by being told we will get all of these things. And now we're converting, expecting to get them. And even good Christians who become preoccupied with self-satisfaction and not the purposes of God. And I'm one of them. And I'm certain in many ways, so are you. We then have this self-centered Christianity and not a God-centered Christianity. There's no balance. I don't know if you know this, but did you know that everything we do as Christians, as born-again people, as born-again human beings, everything is to be done to His glory. Everything we do. Colossians 3.23 tells us, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. You see, you and I were God's image bearers, made in His image to glorify Him in everything, even the smallest of things. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote about the most simplistic things. He says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything. Does that change your view? I mean, if that's not humbling, if that doesn't put you in reverence to God, I don't know what will. All of creation exists to glorify God. What a way to think. Think about Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. You remember if humans never said a word, even the rocks would cry out. Everything is to glorify Him. When you think that way and you look upon the whole world and everything that's going on, does that not change your view of everything? Wow, it's amazing. So therefore, we as Christians exist to glorify God and live for Him. And I think if we truly grasp that, which I know I don't always, but as I go work my way through these verses, man, you're seeing a life change right in front of you. And it will completely change the way that we live. Because you remember in Matthew 6.33, what does it tell us? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then what? All these things shall be added to you. Now, why did Jesus say that? Because of all the scriptures surrounding that. If you read those verses, what do they tell us? That all the people were worried about food and clothes and where they're going to live and all of that. And what did Jesus say about that? That's what the heathen think about. That's what the Gentiles think about. You're not to worry about that. They were worried about everything that the world was worried about and preoccupied with that. This is to not put things into the right order in our Christian walks. 
we become then like Israel, where they built their houses before they built the Lord's house. Thinking that first I must take care of myself, then I can take care of what the Lord needs. Not realizing that the order is different. That seek the Lord first and He takes care of the rest. And that's the truth. A byproduct of following the Lord is complete satisfaction and contentment. And that's the right order, if we would grasp hold of that. Now, this isn't to rebuke anyone. It's just to simply demonstrate that we must look at this section from God's perspective, not our own. Because it talks about His righteousness. Not the righteousness that He's giving to us. His righteousness. We have already dealt with us. God's time. It's His righteousness. What did Jesus' death mean? Not only to us, but to God Himself. You see, the ultimate purpose of my salvation and of your salvation is His glory. That's the only purpose. His glory. In everything I say, in everything I do, may we glorify Him. That's a life-altering statement, don't you think? Life-altering. What reverence then this brings to our Lord. What reverence this brings to God. It's for His righteousness and His glory. And it should make us want this for other people. That's the purpose of it. This is when we are truly living for Him. His kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now all of this thought is to really help us level up our thinking. To get us from the slums of Christianity to living in complete victory on this earth while we're here. He saved me. He saved you to live and to glorify Him. All the blessings that come after that are just a byproduct. And they're awesome and they're good and we love them. But if we're seeking Him first, He'll take care of all of these things. Think about it. David Brainerd, he was an American minister who became well-known as a missionary uh, to the Native Americans among the Delaware Indians in New Jersey long time ago. His biographer was his, was his father-in-law. You've probably heard of his name, Jonathan Edwards, who had his own great ministry. And on Brainerd's deathbed, he was asked what he thought heaven was going to be like for him. Brainerd replied by saying this, My heaven is to please God and glorify Him, to give all to Him, to be wholly devoted to His glory. I do not go to heaven to be advanced, but to give honor to God. It is no matter where I will be stationed in heaven, whether I have a high seat or a low seat, but to live and to please and to glorify God, that's my heaven. End quote. Amazing statement. So it is not dying to give me righteousness, but to demonstrate His. And as a result, I'm included. Amazing. I'm included. Why? Because in His forbearance, God passed over sins previously committed. Not our sins committed until we come to Christ, but the sins of the people of the Old Testament were passed over. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Forbearance here means a delay of punishment. And it had seemed to everybody that God held His punishment back. That's what everybody thought. You see, because there were those in the Old Testament who were forgiven of their sins. And they were forgiven of their sins even though Jesus Christ had not died yet. Now follow me here. So here's a problem. There's a problem that has to be resolved and worked out. And this is the vindication of God. Jesus died to clear God's name. A characteristic, a characteristic of God is what? Is His love. He wants everyone Save, does he not? Now we think he just states that in the New Testament, but he doesn't. Think with me back now to Ezekiel 
18, verse 23. God is telling the people to turn and live. And he asks this question, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? And he answers his own question in verse 32 of the same chapter. He says, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Does he want people to die in their sins? No, he does not. That is not his goal. That is not his purpose. So God is love, and he wants to forgive sinners. But he's also holy. It's another characteristic of God. So you have this dilemma. He's holy. It's the only characteristic repeated three times consecutively in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 6, he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. If he is holy then, he must do what? He has to punish sin. So you have this God of love who is also holy. He's also just. If he is a God of love, he must forgive sin. So what's the issue? The dilemma is this. How can this righteous God, this loving God, do both? How can he become, how can he be both just and the justifier as he wants to be? There's a dilemma. Now let me paint a picture of what's been going on for 4,000 years before Christ came. Imagine this courtroom setting. We've done this before. But this one's a little bit different. There's this judge and there's this defendant. And the evidence against this defendant is so overwhelming. The jury does not even have to deliberate. I mean, they barely walk out and they walk right back in. There's no question in anyone's mind that this person is guilty. It's rock solid. And then there's this judge. He says, well, I see all the evidence. I know this person's guilty. But man, I'm really feeling generous today. And and I've really come to like you through this whole trial. And you know what? You're just so cute. I just want to take you home with me. And you know what? You can come home with me, and I'm not going to judge you. In fact, you can live with me for the rest of your life. I'll take care of everything. And you're forgiven of everything you you did, and you can go free. Now, can you imagine what the courtroom would be like if that took place? What an uproar it would be? How is that fair? That would not be only unfair. It would be wrong. It'd be completely wrong. Now think about everyone in the Old Testament. All the righteous men that sinned and how they sinned and how the Bible tells us they sinned before Christ died on the cross. Think about all those righteous men. David was seemingly the worst committing adultery and not only that, committing murder. The law said that he needed to die. That was the penalty. But then Nathan comes walking in, tells him this long, elaborate story, and says, hey, David, you're the one. David repents. And what happens? Nathan says, you shall not die. God said, you shall not die. How is that fair? That looks like the scene that we've been talking about. Doesn't it seem like God then is that judge we spoke about, he just forgave whimsically. He just thought to himself, oh, I feel generous today. Now think about this. Who's watching all of this take place? All the demons sentenced to hell and damnation in the fall? They're all watching this passing over a sin take place and imagine their questions. Wait, you condemn us and you're just going to forgive this guy? And you're going to forgive him, and you're going to forgive her, and all of these people that sin, and you condemn us. How is this fair? How can God do this? And what does this leave us in the universe? There's a scandal, a big scandal. How does God do this? These men and these women who sinned before Jesus died on the cross, here's the resolution. They were saved. Why? Because they looked to the cross. They may not have seen it clearly. They were enlightened to a certain point. But they believed. They may not have seen it clearly. 
as we don't always see it clearly. We don't always see our salvation clear, but we believe, and we know we're saved as a result of that faith. It was the same for them back then. Why? Because all the sacrifices, all the promises, all the covenants, everything pointed to the cross. They believed it. They believed Messiah would come. They believed God. They believed God would redeem them. Jesus came to die because it had to be done to clear God's name. Let me quote from Kenneth West who says this, It was this passing by of sin before the cross in the sense that God saved believing sinners without having their sins paid for, thus bestowing mercy without having justice satisfied, which would make God appear as if He condoned sin. That had to be set right in the thinking of the human race. The matter was always right in the eyes of God, for He looked forward to the satisfaction of the broken law at the cross. It makes no difference with God whether He saved sinners before or after the cross, because the cross is an eternal fact in the reckoning of God. Of course, the cross had to come, for a righteous God could not pass by sin, but must require the sin be paid for, His justice must be satisfied, and His government must be maintained. End quote. Remember this? Remember God is beyond all time and space? The cross, therefore, is always now with Him. Always now. He sees the cross all the time. So when it came to forgiveness for those who believed before the cross, God always had the cross in view. So their sins were passed over in this forbearance. His justice held back. And when they died, where did they go? Abraham's bosom. Paradise. That's where they waited. That's where they waited for Jesus Christ to come and get them. And he did when he died on the cross. And just as one man sinned, Adam, one man, Jesus, died for those sins. Therefore, it's an acceptable sacrifice to God. Do you follow? Good, because I don't. God is then just and the justifier of sin. You see that? Amazing. That is why this is the only way to heaven. It is through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we go back to that Psalm 85.10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed on that throne, becoming the mercy seat. This, I tell you, is why all other religions are false. Why? Because all other religions tell us that before their way of salvation came, there was no hope. That's what every other religion says. There was no hope before our true prophet came and shared with everybody what the truth is and how really to be saved. You see, when they came along, they said everyone else was wrong, and now our religion is right. The most recent are those in the 1800s, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, what kind of God would wait till all that time to condemn all these people with no way of salvation and say, now's the time I bring you the truth? What happened to all those people before? They don't say anything about that. So everyone else in their eyes before got it all wrong. This would leave everybody before that time in judgment with no hope. Now, I tell you this, that would be an unfair God. Why would I want any religion that taught that? Our true God was here all the time, and the cross was always in view. It was always the plan. And anyone was saved when they believed, before Jesus died and after Jesus died. Amazing! This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Muhammad didn't die on the cross for men. Buddha didn't die on the cross for men. Gandhi, a great man, didn't die on the cross for men. Joseph Smith didn't. Charles Russell didn't. God incarnate did. Jesus did. We know this. 
for one man to die for our sins and pay the penalty, he would have to be a man who had no sin. Could any of those other men say they had no sin? The Bible tells us, if you think that, you are wrong, because all men sin. So for one man to die, he would have to be a man who had no sin. No mere man could do that, though, because even the most perfect man, Adam, sinned. He was born in perfection, had nothing to worry about, and yet he sinned. So he proved that. This man would have to be more than just a man. He would have to be divine, and he would have to be perfect, wouldn't he? He would have to be God, and he would have to be man. Perfect and sinless in every way. He would have to be born of a virgin through the Holy Spirit, which gives us this great announcement in Matthew chapter 1, 23-25, where it says this, Behold! The virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. The God-man, the perfect sinless one. He is the man Christ, and he's the only mediator between God and man, the Bible tells us. He is the God-man. He fulfilled all the promises. God came down off his throne to us, God with us. That's why every other religion is wrong. It's sweeping. The cross of Christ is sweeping. It's amazing. They are all trying to meet expectations on their own terms and in their own righteousness to show themselves approved when all of it is to glorify Him. They forget that God does not share His glory with anybody. He wants to be the hero of the story every single time. And if you're making yourself the hero of the story, then where is God in all of it? You see, He's the just and the justifier. He did it all. As we've looked at in these verses, it's all His righteousness given to us. It's even His own faith given to us. It's not even our own faith. His salvation and free grace given to me freely, but it cost Him everything to anyone who believes. And it was all done to glorify His name. And because He glorifies His name, He chose to include little old me and little old you in this great plan of salvation now, should this not humble us in reverence to Him? Does this not change your entire view of our salvation? Yes, the byproduct is for us, but ultimately it's for Him, which is why we are to live our lives glorifying His name. And you know what's beautiful about this salvation? Once we have it, we don't lose it. It's amazing. That's what the Bible is teaching us here. And not only that, our sins are not only covered up until the time we ask for forgiveness. Isn't that beautiful? Even after that, all of my sins have been washed away, even the ones to come. It's a wonderful thing. Who wouldn't want this salvation? Should that not change our hearts to tell everybody about this truth? We're going to wrap up here. We'll pray. And as we pray, we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. Mike will pass out the communion cups, and we'll have the worship team come up. We'll do a last song. We'll take communion, and then we'll do a last song. So as Mike begins to send out their, or give out the cups, uh, let us pray. We'll have the worship team come up. We'll take communion together. And then we'll have a last song. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, Father, and thank you so much, man, for your grace, for your mercy. And these sections are so tough, Lord. But we pray that we were able to follow along with what you have for us, what you wanted to share with us today. 
and that you touch our lives, Father, because we desire to glorify your name. We really do. We want to live for you, Father. We want to seek you first, and we know when we do all of these things that we worry about will be taken care of. Lord, help us to walk in you in that way. And Father, as we celebrate this communion time, we identify ourselves with you that, Lord, we have died also with you and are raised up in new life in this glorious, wondrous gift of salvation, this miracle that you have done for us, but mostly to glorify your name. May we walk out of here glorifying you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.